Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I'm joined by Carl Vescovi. Carl is a senior principal from Slalom in Melbourne, and he's someone that's been around the Salesforce ecosystem in Australia for a number of years. He was one of the early Salesforce professionals in the region. So it was really interesting to find out more about him and how he got into Salesforce and actually what he'd been doing before Salesforce, but then what led him into the Salesforce space. We look at his early Salesforce career, the roles that he held and played, and what the region or the market in in Australia looked like back then. We look at how he approached transitioning from a sales role into delivery and what he would class himself as now because he has a very well-rounded background in that he can be involved in sales. He can be across the technical aspects of the platform and engagement management uh, is also very comfortable with the functional side of Salesforce. So we uh, discussed what he would classify his role as right now. We then delve into the local talent pool and how that's evolved over the years, as well as some of the challenges that customers are facing right now. And then we have a a lengthy discussion around the developer role and how that's evolved, but also uh, why there are so many developer requirements in the market when Salesforce are pushing the clicks over code angle. We kind of investigate why there might be as many developer roles as there are, and if they are actually developer roles or if customers are mistaken. We then look at some of the solutions that Carl has built himself and and has made them readily available for other people in the ecosystem and why he does that and how he does that, and then discuss what keeps him engaged and excited about the world of Salesforce. So a really enjoyable episode to record. Carl's a great guy. He shared a lot of insight into how the market has evolved over the years and shared some stories along the way. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Carl, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us and really excited to hear all about your career before Salesforce and what makes you the solution architect, technical architect, whatever you are doing right now and uh, and the role you're playing on the projects you're working on. So let's look backwards and look at what you did before Salesforce. And then we can look forward towards the end of the podcast. What did you do before the world of Salesforce? Yeah, interesting question, Ben, and thank you for having me on. I did a heap of things. I, and by the way, I, I have to say through this, uh, I've been very lucky to be given so many opportunities through my working career. And you'll probably get a feel for that when I tell you what I've done. But uh, it all started with digital and electronics engineering at RMIT. Uh, I didn't finish it. I got about three years in and then there was a life-changing event and of all things, I flipped to nursing. So I went straight from tech into something completely non-tech related and did that for a number of years, which was a great skill to have when you're out backpacking around the world and things like that. It was awesome. There was a worldwide nursing shortage, so it was awesome to to be able to go and and work in a a career kind of way uh, rather than behind a bar making a dollar an hour, that sort of thing. And then when I got back, I decided that uh, I had to move on and come up and do something different. I was really interested in what the reps were doing at the hospital. So I started speaking to them and I ended up moving into pharmaceutical repping. So I 
moved from the hospital system out into GP land and I was talking to doctors about drugs and medication and why they should use them. That was the basis for my sales training, which I then took into selling technology into hospitals. And so I started working for a company called Abbott. Uh, they're a big global company and they did lots of devices for pain control and infusing drugs and things like that. Yep. So I was selling that tech to the hospital networks, then became product manager for that team. So I was responsible for about 800 products and had to move to Sydney to do that. That was awesome. Did that for a couple of years. And then we had a young family. So I decided to come back to Melbourne. So in coming back to Melbourne, I had to find another gig. I wasn't allowed to, to bring that job back to Melbourne with me. So I ended up getting a business development role through Southeast Asia. And so I started setting up distributors in India and Malaysia and Thailand for medical devices. That was great, but with the young family, the travel was huge. So, you know, there was a lot of travel required. So I found another medical device manufacturer who was focused on the local market and worked for them. So I was working away for them and uh, they needed a CRM. They were expanding into the US and that was when I got exposed to Salesforce as a customer. Uh, we implemented Salesforce, immediately found there was a bit of a gap in the product way back then. And so I wrote an S-Control and most of the people listening to this probably don't even know what an S-Control is, would it? but it was the pre-Visual Force and Apex kind of era. And so I wrote a control to help customers who were having the same problem, uh, manage revenue schedules on opportunities. And I published it to the App Exchange. And I think I was the first customer in Australia to publish to the App Exchange. So that was kind of funny to do. And I got to know the Salesforce guys at that point from there. Decided consulting was the go. Really loved the product. Obviously, I'd been learning how it kind of worked and how to leverage it. So I wrote a business plan, gave it to uh, Sean Stillwell of SquarePeg back in the day, who was flying people down to Melbourne. He didn't have an office. And I said, if I hit the numbers on this sheet, could we uh, perhaps set up an office in, in Melbourne? He said, yes, let's take a punt. And so I've got Sean Stillwell to thank for uh, getting me into the industry. So when you were a customer, yeah. what were you, a, you were a Salesforce user. That was your role at the time. Like you were using Salesforce for your opportunities and, and leads and so on. Yeah, the company I was working for were expanding into the US and they had a US sales team that were all over the country and had no CRM to manage pipeline activity, contacts, customer lists, et cetera. And so as the local guy, uh, I was uh, sitting in the office next to the managing director. He said, Carl, you need to find us a CRM. And it was a long time ago, so SAS was not at the forefront of people's minds. Yeah. And there was a guy called Troy Wesley who from Salesforce, who was pretty much number one employee on the ground in Australia, I think. Well, he was the rep. He came in, gave me a demo. And then from there, as they say, the rest is history, right? So what, what was it that, that made you decide to, like, obviously you must have had a, a technical element, right? To be able to write this S. S control. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And an S control is just like some HTML and JavaScript. Right, so it's like a little um, web page that you could yeah. you could use like a Visual Force page, and I had no idea how to get started. And you may be familiar. There's a famous online presence whose name who names himself SFDC Fox. The the actual original post 
that I wrote to him, asking him for a bit of help and him responding and sending me some code, that's still online somewhere. Oh, wow. I, I even come across it sometimes. And it's back from, yeah, 2010 or something. You know, those really old community posts that you might yeah. stumble across every now and again. Well, yeah, it's, it's buried in there. And it was my initial introduction to this amazing person, this guy, SFDC Fox, who's still in the ecosystem and very active today. And um, yeah, he said, look, I can, I can help get you started. I'll give you a snippet of code of something I did. And I, I just ran with it from there. Sure. So you were at that point still a sales guy. You, you reach out to Sean Stillwell. They were, they were the first or one of the first consulting partners in Australia, right? Doing Salesforce like as a business. Yeah, they were all of like, from memory, I think maybe about three or four very boutique, very small organizations doing it. Yeah, there was a, a range of boutique organizations. The ones that come straight to mind were D-Sales, who had been around right from the outset. Then there was SquarePeg. I think even Cloud Sherpas may have even had somebody on the ground. So very few options for a company who wanted to implement Salesforce to go to. Hmm. Yeah. So your role with Sean, what you, you made this business plan and, and that was like a sales driven business plan around what you could bring in in Melbourne and, and were you going to be the delivery guy as well? Yeah, I had to do it all. So uh, the idea was, because uh, I felt that I had a pretty good technical knowledge of the product because it was so simple back then. There wasn't a lot Salesforce could do. Uh, I don't think you could change a login screen or you, know, you couldn't tailor it particularly it was very very primitive compared to what it is now yeah and so there wasn't that much to learn in relative terms so straight away felt reasonably confident with it I had good local support from Jeff Chalice who was the customer success manager of the day based in Melbourne and some other uh, people who knew the product and you just basically picked it up and ran with it and so from a consulting perspective yeah you would sell a job and then you'd be on the ground delivering it the next day and you'd still be on the phone trying to sell in next week's work. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess they were pretty quick turnaround implementations. Because I hear these stories about people used to buy Salesforce on their credit card. Yeah, um, that's right. That's the way the AEs used to sell it. So the Salesforce guys would say, oh, you just got to give us a credit card number and you're up and running. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, so it was really, uh, yeah, obviously then services might be a little bit different, but they were quite quick turnaround projects. Nothing like a, you know, a one-year implementation like we get now. No, absolutely not. No. And there was nothing you could have justified needing a year for, really. There was uh, only a, a number of different levers and buttons you could pull to, to get Salesforce to do what you wanted. Yeah. Sure. So what attracted you then to joining Salesforce? Well, after Square Peg, I joined Salesforce as an engagement manager. And I really, like I kind of a recurring theme in this session for me, be, you know, I really enjoyed the tech, loved the technology and what it could do for a client. So the opportunity came up to get Salesforce professional services going in Melbourne. There had been one guy on the ground for a while. Um, he'd moved on. And so there was literally nobody representing Salesforce in a delivery capacity on the ground in Melbourne. So that opportunity came up. I took that with both hands. And so it was almost like starting again with SquarePeg where there was account execs that you had to win over because they already had good relationships with the, the boutique partners of the day. And you had to build some trust. You had to build pipeline. 
uh, I was told that we would resource up Melbourne once the pipeline existed. So I had to sell work. I had to deliver work. Yeah, once again, a bit of a one-man band. Just relied a lot on subbing in work from some of the various partners that were around. So you were subbing work off of partners back into Salesforce to, to do professional services? Sometimes I needed extra hands to deliver work. And once some of the visual force Apex stuff came about, um, there were particular partners that were better at it than others. So you would sub work out to them, but it was always pro services that owned the engagement end sure. and it was ultimately responsible, you know, for delivering a good outcome, right? Yeah, nice. So um, talking of Visual Force and, and Apex, like obviously you, you started in the ecosystem by writing an S-Control. So did you always, from the early days, have a, a technical slant and, and did you pick up coding at that point relatively easily or did it take some time for you to be comfortable with it? It took a session with a guy called Chris Mayle. And now Chris Mayle, he's recently been one of the partners at PwC. Yeah. And he was a partner at Deloitte. Chris was the first developer on the ground for Salesforce that wrote Visual Force and Apex. And I was in, in the Sydney office for Salesforce when I was an engagement manager. Chris was busily uh, squirreling away at a piece of code somewhere. And I knew that I had to be able to not only sell projects that required it, but I had to, being the only guy on the ground or the only person on the ground in Melbourne, I also had to have some degree of uh, knowledge about what it would mean and be able to speak to developers about what is this visual force and Apex and so on. So Chris was kind enough to show me a hello world on visual force and Apex. So he literally wrote something in front of me within a matter of minutes, and that was my starting point. And I went, okay, I have to take that now and run with it. I pretty much got back to Melbourne. And the first thing that happened after that was I ended up having to write a Visual Force page for an enterprise customer that was using Salesforce in a number of different countries. And they wanted a Visual Force page to solve a particular issue. And so that was my first <laughs> billable piece of work, trying to nut out uh, Visual Force. To, to stand this thing up for a global sales team yeah and so going back like to that point i would like to presume there were but were there things like uh, developer orgs and like that that was always a thing or were you building straight into production back then uh no you weren't you weren't building into production there were there were sandboxes um and it was uh, if i'm thinking back to that particular example there was a uh yeah they they, they had a range of resources available. They're a large organization. Yeah, they, they had pretty much every checkbox ticked on the MSC, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You were cutting your teeth with development, but it was still relatively safe. You weren't <laughs> you weren't doing anything straight into production back then or well, all I thought was there's not a heck of a lot of people who are going to be able to help me around, you know, uh, at the time. You know, you had to just figure it out and test it thoroughly yourself. Um, there really wasn't a, a clear point of view on DevOps. There wasn't the tooling around either. It was it was pretty much lift and shift with uh, Ant and, you know, moving metadata around. That was it. Yeah. Mm. So at what point, and maybe you don't know even, at what point did you class yourself as an IT professional and not a salesperson? <laughs> um, I've always had a bit of an identity crisis in this whole ecosystem. <laughs> I think, Ben, we've, yeah, we've had 
little interactions on and off over time. And I think you've asked me, you know, what kind of role might I be looking for or whatever? And I find that really hard question to answer. Um, the reason for that is I've often been called somebody that's good at most things on the platform, but master of none, right? I don't, I don't fall into, uh, you know, a, a purely technical stream. Uh, I enjoy pre-sales as well. I love ideating how we might solve problems with clients. So it's always felt like a bit of selling and the text, just the, the fun bit at the end of that process. Uh, if you're an engagement manager, you're still selling anyway. I, I think everybody's selling because in a pre-sales or selling cycle, it's obvious what you're doing. When you go into delivery mode, you still got to bring the client along on the ride. Uh, sometimes you have to make compromises that are in their best interests. And so you need to present those compromises in the best possible light. Yeah. You, you need to do that with confidence. You need to do it with knowledge behind you. You can't, um, you know, fake it till you make it. I think people see through that within seconds for mm -hmm. the most part. And so in, in a lot of respects, I think there's just a huge overlap between sales and delivery in terms of those kind of skills. So if they're the main thing that I'm bringing to the table, uh, I'm really not sure whether I'm in a sales guy or an IT professional because they're the things that I kind of focus on, right? It's trying to tell the story in a non-technical way. Which is the skill set that kind of everyone wants and everyone needs, right? It's, um, it's the ability to, to talk to a room and, and talk in different terms and different ways so that everyone understands. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and uh, you know, when you hear people talking and it's predominantly to a client or a non-Salesforce client or even somebody that's purchased it and they're using a lot of Salesforce terminology, I kind of tend to, to wince a little bit, you know, it's like that isn't going to resonate with yeah. the person you're speaking to. So you've got to always be mindful of who you're talking to and the, and the kind of conversation they want to have as well. You know, you could sure. be talking to an enterprise architect who knows they've got Salesforce but has no clue what leads mean in the Salesforce context or campaigns or, you know, have any awareness of it other than, look, I know it's a box in the technical landscape in our organisation, but it's just one of many. So... From a terminology perspective, I think you've just got to keep things real from the client perspective. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah. what about um, the talent pool then? So you you really have seen the evolution of Salesforce in the region. You've seen the good, the bad, and the the indifferent. So so yeah, from a, from a talent pool perspective, how has it evolved? Like you struggled to to find people that to help with uh, with a, a Visual Force page back, however long ago that was. And now there's obviously everyone's looking to get into the ecosystem. So at what point was the, the market starting to really hot up for talent? I can't, I can't remember a time where the market like, wasn't crying out for skilled resources. I think there's always been resources around, but the numbers are obviously swelling dramatically. But I feel like and maybe I'm, I could be being a bit harsh, I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of people have come in to this, this ecosystem, but perhaps the experience and the scars that some clients want, you know, they want people who, to come in who've had exposure to a wide range or, and, and, or a large number of projects and had a lot of time on the keyboard or, you know, in front of clients doing workshops for this particular product, and, and they haven't had that exposure yet. 
So I think we've got a lot of people coming in, but it's giving them that opportunity to, to build their skill sets. I think that's the bit that's tough at the moment. Yeah, for sure. I, we, we've been doing our surveys recently and um, we, we haven't released the findings, but we're in the process of just getting that all sorted. And um, one of the questions we've asked different skill sets, so we, we break it down. So we, admins get asked admin questions, technical architects get asked technical architect questions. But one of the questions we've asked certain skill sets is um, to comment on the, the ecosystem and, and how they would perceive the, the talent pool in the market. And, and the, the things that we've heard consistently are not candidate short any longer. Like it's not, it's not that there aren't enough people, it's quality and experience short. And which I think aligns to what you're saying, right? If you want a Salesforce developer, you can find a Salesforce developer. It's, it's not that they don't exist, but the, the top quality ones, the ones that do have those, you know, war stories and um, have got the battle scars from working on complex pieces of work, maybe even outside of Salesforce um, and, and bringing that knowledge into the ecosystem. That's kind of where we're lacking. Yeah, yeah. I, and and I, I completely concur with that. It's, it's the next challenge for the industry, I think there's a lot of interest. People realise it's a it's a hot market. Uh, there's jobs to be had, but it's almost flicking to some of the things you go through on some of your posts on LinkedIn, right? It's about well, how do you present yourself in the best possible light as well? Because people aren't just going to hand over an opportunity to you. In some respects, you've got to make it happen. You've got to, for example, I, I you know. If I try and think of myself, so I wrote the business plan to give to Sean. Okay, you've, I reached out and said, I want this, but I need your inputs to make it happen. I've worked with people who've come into the industry and suggested they build a portfolio of examples of their own work. Why not build something in the evening one night and show us how good you are with your lightning component skills or you know, you might build a flow that does some funky thing, like whatever it is, the kind of skills you think you have that you can bring to the table, you've got to sell yourself. And I think that's potentially where people are falling over. And it's the biggest opportunity for someone to make themselves stand out as well. Yeah, People sure. don't do it often. I've even seen someone gave feedback to you. You must have suggested a similar thing, I think, with building a, a sample project or yeah. something. To, that they can showcase to a, a recruiter or a, a client even. And I, I, I think that's absolutely the best advice you can give anyone. To, to yeah, 100%. Get that, to get over that hump of, I don't have the experience yet, but I'm, I'm so keen. Yeah, it's, it's the differentiator, right? Because not everyone's doing it, but everyone is getting certifications and everyone is doing trailhead badges. So it's, it's like the next step on from that to, to show you can come up with something yourself and, and execute so you've worked with, obviously, um, obviously I'm focusing on developers here a little bit, but you've worked with a lot of developers um, over the years, I'm sure. What is the difference between having a really good developer and a really bad developer on a project? Like how, how, how much of an impact does the quality of a developer make to, to you as even a technical architect or, or if you're putting yourself in the client's shoes? Like, you know, that, how, how important is it that they're getting that right and getting the right developer in the business? it's pretty clear what the differences are between a good developer and a not so good developer. That's been published by many people over as long as there's been devs in the Salesforce world. The impact they have is huge because not done right, uh, you know, scripting in Salesforce being a multi-tenant environment, it's gotta be clean, it's gotta be efficient. 
and it's got to be tested thoroughly. Uh, and that's that's probably a key mantra for any uh, software engineering, I guess, you know, and writing code. But all the principles remain the same in Salesforce, whether they do as for as for writing any code outside of Salesforce, I think, you know, it's got to be neat, it's got to be readable, it's got to be robust, it has to be looking at positive and negative test cases, it's got to be um, modularized and built for reuse wherever absolutely possible, and ready to hand over to the next dev who comes along. Now, if you if you lift the bonnet on lots of orgs, you know, we're still going through a bit of a maturing phase, I guess, because there's still a lot of people out there writing code that doesn't necessarily align to those sorts of ideals. But why? Why? Um, I think, and maybe this is changing more so now as more people come into this industry from coding backgrounds. So people who've actually been schooled in writing code as compared to people like myself, <laughs> who might have come from totally non-dev backgrounds, right? And they've been schooled on these kinds of things. And some of the, the most amazing devs I've, I've seen were working for a particular ISV. They were writing amazing code and they were pretty much just fresh out of school, but they were, they'd learned C Sharp, .NET, whatever, you know, those sort of languages. I think they'd been writing stuff for Android they decided to give this a crack because there was jobs to be had. And it took them about six weeks to convert over and be writing amazing quality code very quickly. People who come in and don't have that kind of schooling don't appreciate perhaps some of the, the impact that their sloppiness or, or the way they're writing might actually be an anti-pattern and not something that's recommended on the platform. They may not have a good grasp of I mean, really now a developer on Salesforce, you, you can be exposed to what? Apex, still Visual Force in some cases, you've got the JavaScript to cope with, Aura framework, Lightning Web Components. I mean, you name it, there's a whole raft of things. I keep finding that full stack developers who come in seem to be able to just look at that stuff and barely bat an eyelid. Whereas people who are coming in and learning it from the Salesforce perspective and starting there, it's much more of a struggle. Sure pick it up that schooling thing is um it's so true and i think like that it, it comes down like because there there's so much information out there now like it, it is sloppy if you don't take on but if you want to be a good developer you can become a good developer by reading what's online and studying like you don't have to have someone looking over your shoulder looking at your code telling you what's right and wrong but but that helps right so i think if you've had a good mentor and you've had a good tech lead and and um i had a, a, a kind of technical architect i was speaking to this week we were talking about this topic and they said, you know, in, in those engineering teams, you have a head of engineering, you have a tech lead, and they're the ones reviewing your code. And they're the ones, you know, they're the ones giving you feedback and taking you on that journey. And, and they're expecting that if they give you feedback, you don't make that same mistake again. Like you, you address that. And, and maybe that's what's been lacking in, in the, the software engineering team leadership managing Salesforce devs. And I think that's changing now. Like we're seeing more and more software engineering companies hiring for Salesforce engineers rather than Salesforce developers. Yeah. Awesome. But the expectation is so much higher from these companies. Yeah. The only thing that can happen is the quality of the work will go up and the structure or the, the, the support around an individual who's wanting to take this on and learn it and become really proficient at it and build a career doing it. 
it, it's so much better than just being yeah. with your own devices and copy pasting something from a trailhead into an yeah, organ sure. going, okay, yeah, I've got that. There's a super badge or something and now I'm good to go. Yeah. I know enough to be dangerous, right? I work with uh, realestate.com in Melbourne and they, um, when, they have, uh, when they're hiring for their devs, they have a technical test that isn't Salesforce. I've had people do it in TypeScript, but some developers just to see it and they're like, I won't do that. I can't do that. Like, that's not my bag. And, and that's the kind of, it makes it more challenging for me, right? Because there's less people that can do that. But it's interesting that that's the kind of, a, like these people, like they're working on Salesforce in the, in, in the business, but they're expected to be able to show that they can do something outside of Salesforce. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, I think that makes complete sense to me, given what I observed with these graduates who full stack devs walk straight in, you know, the whole apex lightning web component thing it's just another language to them so i think that's why they just pick it up so quickly so sure. i think you know and i think that's a, a challenge right uh, you interview some candidates that say they're senior devs but there's a little asterisk on the end that comes out during an interview process where it's well i i, I am i'm really good with visual force and that's kind of where it stops right and they haven't had the exposure to the other styles of, of coding and the other skills required in a Salesforce environment, which I find surprising. Yeah, uh, sure. I would have thought they'd wanted to probably hone those skills themselves before they Absolutely. turn up for an interview, right? So. Final question on devs, and, and this is a hot topic of, at the moment. So I've got a lot of developer roles on at the moment, and I, I posted about it on LinkedIn this week, and someone said, well, you know, why so many developer roles? If, if Salesforce are, are pushing the clicks, not code, why are there so many developer roles and actually are they developer roles or are they the companies think they need a developer, but actually it can all be done with flows now. So what's your observation on that? Like do customers need as many devs as we're seeing or, or you know, are there, are there reasons perhaps that they don't? What, what's your view? When you pose this question, I thought, well, who's asking for the dev? Is it the client saying they need a dev and are they... Like, I'm not sure how these requests for resources come through to you, Ben, but uh, I would think that there's going to be a subset of all the requests you get. There'll be a subset that actually just need an admin or when I say just an admin, I mean, some admins are amazing, right? What they can do with the point and click tool. So I don't want to make that sound derogatory in any way, uh, but they're just different, right? It's a different skill set. And the client might not have any requirement for code and yet they're asking for a dev. So sure. that might be one subset. Then you get this situation where there's uh, clients that have combinations, and I, I reckon this would be fairly common, combinations of configured automation and code. And there's you know an interaction, interplay between the two things, and that makes environment's probably a bit brittle, right? And and prone to breaking or having things go wrong. So I would say there's gonna probably, unfortunately be developers required to fix things like that, refactor yep. things. There's still gonna be clients that are really pushing the bounds of their governors on environments. And as a result, code's always going to have more potential to be more efficient than the configured approach. Mm -hmm. So, Hence, they'll require a developer for sure. Sure. Um, and then there's all the custom UI stuff because if it takes you six clicks to get a particular job done, most people can see the value in probably getting a, a widget 
built or some sort of UI adaption done to to make it refine it down to a couple of clicks or a single mm -hmm. click. Yeah, I mean, on to your point about uh, like how do the requirements come through? It's uh, obviously it's a mixed bag, um, but more often than not, a client has in their head the the vision of what they want, right, or what they need, and often it's led by we need a Salesforce developer, and then uh, we'll un we'll unpick that a little bit. Like I, I had a client that reached out to me the other day, and they said um, we need a functional business analyst or something along those lines. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, like, what what will they be doing on a day to day basis? And and it turns out that um, they they were going to be building a community and they they didn't need front end development skills because they had a front end team that were doing a custom custom front end on the community but they did require someone that had apex skills right so that the person would need to be able to code in apex so when i asked them why they called it a technical business analyst it was because they felt they needed a developer hence the word technical but they also needed someone that can speak to the business and communicate with the business and that's why they bolted business analyst on um, so really, it was a developer role that could communicate to the business, but it was called a functional business analyst or a technical business analyst, <laughs> when in reality, it was a developer role, right? They need to be able to write Apex. And, and I think the expectation with, with most developers from a company would be that they can write Apex, but they can also do configuration and do the declarative stuff when that's the best solution. Yeah, great. Whereas I think when someone's hiring an admin, they're not looking for someone that can do declarative and programmatic. They're looking for someone that can do declarative and then they bring in a developer if they need the programmatic stuff done. So I think the expectation from a developer is they should be able to do both. Yeah, I would agree. And probably, uh, you know, a good developer knows when not to code just as readily as they can, you know, hit the keyboard up and, and create code as well, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what's, um, what's changed over the years? Obviously, things have got more complex, but what are the biggest challenges you're seeing um, customers face right now that they weren't facing uh, many years ago? To be honest, I think that the tech, <clears throat> the tech is the easiest part. Um, the reason I say that, when you think about it, it's totally predictable. You tell it to do a certain thing, you know it's going to do it, right? That, that's what the technology is. And then even if it doesn't do that, because you've, built a bug in somewhere or an unintended feature. Um, you know, you have a process to kind of unwind that, get it out and, and fix it. And you're on your merry way. So why does it seem so hard? I think it's uh, the biggest change from, in, in my opinion, it's the initial uptake and the ongoing adoption. It's the change management piece. History in the projects I've worked in, to me, change is something that gets squished and kind of compressed down to help kind of achieve a, maybe a particular number or work something into a, a budget. There's constant compromises and pressure against really good change management. I've seen it done really, really well, and I've seen it done well, non-existent, right? It's the text, the panacea that's just going to magically make everything better. But it always boils down to people. So if you're looking after all the individuals that are affected by the tech being implemented in the first place and considering their what's going to happen in their world and what the change is for them and you know even the what's in it for them i mean a lot of projects just don't even think about that they just kind of deliver on the stated requirement i say a lot of projects you know i, I don't have any stats to back that right but it's just a, a gut, gut feel it's yeah, a gut yeah. feel and it seems to be something that the industry struggled with for so long so maybe there's something in it right Sure. Uh, when you look at the stats on failed CRM implementations, the tech doesn't fail itself. It's people saying this is not doing what we want it to do. 
So, you know, have a look at the people and their frustrations and you can usually work backwards from there and see that perhaps certain affected cohorts of people or individuals even weren't considered when this thing was put in place, right? So I think effective change management has to be part of any of these implementations um, and it has to be part of a company's kind of psyche when they implement Salesforce. So that's one of the, the biggest challenges, I think. And I would have said another one is the fact that Salesforce, the only thing that stays the same about Salesforce is it keeps changing, right? It keeps evolving. Three major releases a year. Now, you know, lots of organizations traditionally who are looking at something like Salesforce have got slow changing technology layers. You know, these things have been embedded for years. There's certain governance models, application lifecycle management processes and frameworks in place that don't necessarily align to the way the fact that Salesforce changes so quickly, right? You know, things that you couldn't have built one or two releases ago suddenly are a baked in feature that you just flick a switch and you can now do it. You know, think about all the Kanban boarding and things that people do in list views, you know, stuff like that. Clients ask for it. Now it's just baked in. How long have you been crying out for dynamic forms? <laughs> yeah, I think I wrote something going, yay, that's, that's finally here. And then somebody within my organization pointed out, yeah, but for custom objects only. I nearly cried, but, yeah, um, yeah. you know, but these are all the great, you know, you think about how much tech debt that's just going to make kind of redundant, right? All these custom interfaces and workarounds people have done for years to try to make better user interfaces. And we're on the cusp of having more and more capability, right? Within a point and click kind of approach. So it's it's exciting times for new customers. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. On uh, <laughs> I, I have, was working with someone to do some work with dynamic forms in my org and they're like an experienced uh, developer, technical architect and I was amazed by dynamic forms, but I also complained about something. I was like, I can't believe it. You can't do this. And I can't remember what it was, but he was like, are you joking? Like I've waited all this time for dynamic forms and you're complaining about that. And for me, it was just like an obvious thing you'd be able to do. Right. But for him, it's like, this is, it's, it's taken so long to get to this point. Like you should be happy with what we've got. Yep. Yeah, totally. And, and that's part of the, um, the fun of Salesforce, right. Is sometimes, I don't know how many times actually, where something you've been asked to deliver and you can't necessarily do it right yeah, right now without code, but it's been, it's almost scary really when you might look at a roadmap or something and there's things in beta or there's stuff that's coming down the, the, the tube. And so, you know, the client has been okay with law. Well, we might just hold off for a little bit. We're okay with standard and we might wait and see whether this thing actually manifests as becoming generally available, right? so that they don't have to invest in all the development and so forth to build things that are going to be redundant or replaced with standard functionality within one or two releases. You know, it's crazy. So just the fact, though, that I don't believe organisations necessarily, if they're not set up to think about Salesforce as this kind of iterative, ever-changing beast uh, and setting up centres of excellence and, you know, involving the enterprise architecture group who, 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 who need to be mindful that this thing does evolve um, over time. Um, it has new, new capabilities coming up all the time. 
there's so many opportunities for customers who buy Salesforce to try and keep continually squeezing more out of it and getting more and more return on that investment. You know, it's 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 a, a Lamborghini in this kind of space, and people who buy it are going to get the most out of it if they take it in for a service every now and again, right? And, uh... Yeah, so true. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way of looking at it, though, right? Because I think. Uh... A lot of people just think it's plug and play and off you go and uh, and it really isn't that any longer, but it also does. Like, I think you still see customers that are like blown away by the cost of the ongoing support model of, of having a, an admin and then having, you know, it, it continually developing the platform to ensure that it is still fit for purpose for their business and, and utilizing all of the features that you can. And people are still scared by that because they're like, oh, I just thought you had it and that was it. You know, it, you get these releases every uh, every so often and off you go. Yeah. And and you think, you know, a couple of years ahead and a client, if they haven't continually come back and, and check to see whether there's more and more things baked into their subscription that they could literally be leveraging within their organization, then, you know, they're, they're miss, it's missed opportunity. It's opportunity cost to them, right? They're, they're paying for it, but they're not getting a lot out of it. It's like a gym subscription, right? Yeah, yeah. A gym sure. membership, you know, they're, they're, they're sponsoring and not getting the best. So in terms of challenges to your original question, I think they're the two big ones. It's people and, and the impact that something like Salesforce has on them and on a daily basis. And the second part is an organization actually putting the framework in place to be able to manage such a ever-changing kind of beast, you know, yeah, inside sure. their organization, particularly if they haven't had something like this before. Mm. Sure. So my next question was going to be around um, the, the products or the little apps that you've been releasing. And I was going to say, when did you start that? But now I know you built an S-Control way back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I did that and that was, that was awesome. And, you know, I do it because... I've had so many people help me and just, I, I, I'm continually amazed at how much of a community there is around the product and people are so willing to help. And I think this infamous, you know, SFDC Fox, he set the ball rolling for me because he was so willing to help. He was over in Belgium, I think, and at the time, and I just couldn't believe that somebody would, from the other side of the world, he didn't have to do anything, but he, he helped me create this thing. And so I've kind of run with that ever since. And I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I just see sometimes I might be able to help uh, when I see people struggling with something, you know, maybe even colleagues who are really, or, or, or people who are really good with flow and things like that, but that's kind of the, they're constrained by the bounds of that. That was the most recent one. So people struggling with date times, it's like, oh, that stuff's hell. So Apex, programmers have the luxury of all these methods. So why don't we just expose those methods to the flow guys so we can all benefit, you know? Yeah. They're only little things, but that S control, I used to laugh every at the end of every month. I think that thing, I left a little, because it was just HTML and JavaScript, I left a little cookie in it, like a tracker, a bit like a Google tracker thing. Yeah, yeah. I fully documented, hey, there's this thing in here. If you're happy to opt in, great. If you don't want it, here's the detail. You just this is what we rip out because it was totally accessible. All the bits. It wasn't a managed package or anything. And people left it in there. And at the end of every month, because it was to do with pipeline management and cleaning up your revenue schedules and things, at the end of every month, you'd get tens of thousands of hits on this tracker. 
No way. Cookie thing. Yeah, yeah. And at times it would peak at like 100,000 uses over like three days, right? Because it was, everyone was rushing to fix their, their pipeline at the end of every month. It was hilarious. I bet um, you wish you uh, put a dollar charge on that per use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. You live and you learn, eh? You live and you learn. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, it was it was good fun. I needed to do it out of necessity. Our pipeline was just mangled. So uh, I had to fix it for us. And then I just was happy to share. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So what what keeps you, and we've spoken a lot about what's so great about Salesforce and the, the constant evolution, but what keeps you engaged and excited and, and not looking outside of the ecosystem for opportunities? Yeah, okay. I put it down to three Ps. So one's the product. The fact that it, it, it's just impossible to keep up with it. Uh, anyone who says they do, I, I, I would be very suspicious of because <laughs> it's just so broad. The three releases a year, hundreds of pages of release notes, things that change. It keeps it really interesting. There's always new ways to solve a problem and you, you just can't rest on your laurels and go, well, because I've done it this way the last 10 times, it'll work the same on the 11th. You've got to continually say, well, is that the way Salesforce thinks it needs, it should be done? Is there a yeah. more elegant way? So you're continually reinventing your kind of points of view on some things. There's best practices, sure. But sometimes when you need to come up with creative solutions to things, you potentially don't have to be so creative. It might now be out of the box, like we said earlier. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing is product, people. The entire time I've been in this ecosystem, I've just loved the people who are all about helping each other get better at what you do. I've made lifelong friends. I've been fortunate enough to raise thousands of dollars for charity, doing various things when I was working at Salesforce. You know, I've been surrounded by positivity and, and lots of great mentors, people who volunteered to, to mentor me. So that's awesome. And the last thing's potential. So, uh, so it's kind of the three Ps really, the product, people, and the, and the potential. I, I totally love seeing people who come from really diverse backgrounds come into the ecosystem and build themselves a career. I've seen people who've come from hospitality now flying high and doing, um, you know, vice president training at one of the big SIs. Right? Who are you talking about? Uh, you, yeah, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? You know, and they've and kudos to them. They've totally run with it. But there's not too many opportunities in the world where you can come from a totally different background. I know I, I count myself in that and uh, be given so many opportunities to, to grab with two hands and, and to, to work hard at and, and reap a reward, you know, and, and work in such a healthy industry that, you know, despite COVID, fortunate enough to keep working, lots of job opportunities, meeting people like yourself, you know, it's, it's amazing. So why would you want to move? <laughs> and it's not just like a, a local community either. That's what always amazes me about that. Like you mentioned the, the SFDC Fox and uh, like it, it truly is like global, but everyone kind of knows each other. And, you know, there's that collaboration across the world to help each other out. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It is a fairly small in relative terms ecosystem, I guess, to other platforms or products. But in some ways, that's probably just the way the company's grown, you know, and the way the product started from something so small. It didn't start off a behemoth. It was it was a small thing and there was a core group of people. I know people who are still at Salesforce now that were there when I started. They're still at that company. I think one of the tier three tech guys, 
Frank Zhang, he's uh, famous within Salesforce. You know, he's a living legend, and he's still doing Salesforce stuff. So, you know, Mike Burnside, another one, like he's a living legend there. So um, there's all these amazing people and they've never left either. So there's something about it, you know. Yeah, for sure. So um, look, thank you so much. I, I know you to be a LinkedIn guy, but do, are you on any other platforms? If anyone wants to reach out, are you a Twitter guy or LinkedIn? No, I, don't, I don't do Twitter. Uh, no, I'm, I'm more than happy to speak to people on via LinkedIn or yeah, and we can we can go from there. I guess I find I get a lot of inspiration from uh, some of the LinkedIn guys there. I think yeah, Johan um, is amazing. Recent CTA too, and he's just producing so much good content. So he's killing it, isn't he? Like he's just it's just con I I'm, I registered for his emails as well now, and there's just it's constant. There's just always something interesting coming through, and I try and answer some of his. He's doing these uh, apex questions at the moment, <laughs> yeah. and I haven't got one right so far. Oh, haven't you? <laughs> that's for when you do your platform too, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. One day maybe. But yeah, look, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the chat. And uh, and yeah, if anyone does reach out, obviously LinkedIn's the place. And looking forward to seeing what the next uh, solution that you provide to the uh, the community is. Oh, Go well, on, maybe people just ask. I'll come up with some little widget or something to help them out. Yeah, yeah it's no. good fun. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, we're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible, and your reviews will help us do that.